Hello and welcome to today's edition of Reel It In. I'm Dan Sapin, psychologist and psychotherapist out of Huntington, New York, and I'm here with my usual buddies. Martin Holberg calling in from Stockholm, Sweden. Joe Messina in Boston. And we're privileged today to have my dear old friend, Dr. Webb Garrison, joining us, uh, who's going to have a lot of good food for thought and food for the soul today. Uh, Webb, why don't you tell us why you're here? Sure. Um, first of all, I thank you, uh, Dan, Martin, and Joe, for having me. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to be your guest. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion that will uh, emerge and kind of constellate as we continue to, to talk and wade through topics. Um, I am here, uh, well, one, because you asked me to be here, Dan. Um, and one of the reasons that you asked me to be here is that I, I uh, um, you know, I am a PhD, I'm a psychologist and I've, I've been practicing for 28 years, but I also have a, a, a background in uh, spiritual practice. And, um, and throughout my career, I have sought to integrate spiritual awareness, philosophical awareness, and, and psychological awareness. Um, so, uh, and this, you know, this goes back well before uh, I entered the field. So just, you know, quick primer, okay, uh, to give you a little sense of, of where the, some of the spirituality and psychology come from. Uh, my father was kind of a mystic dude, but he was also kind of schizotypal. So he was a little bit weird and kept to himself and had a lot of strange perceptual types of experiences, including energy types of experiences. Uh, his father was a Methodist minister and, uh, and uh, uh, very philosophical. His favorite conversation in the 1950s was uh, talking with other Southern ministers about the almost certainty that Jesus was uh, of much darker skin than typically portrayed. Um, so my, so that's Webb Garrison Sr. He was kind of a, a, a radical in some ways. Um, and the joke about him uh, upon his death was he was, he was probably the only atheist Methodist minister uh, that had uh, been in the ministry for over 30 years. Um, he, he wrote about uh, 60 books, mostly about uh, obscure things about history or about the nature of language and why we say certain things. Um, so uh, so uh, that's a little bit about uh, the, the spiritual heritage that I come from. Uh, I, I, I come from the South, and so I had to navigate a lot of the evangelical uh, kind of uh, thought process, a lot of the density that's involved in that. Um, uh, I was raised Methodist, and you know, I didn't even know this until uh, much later. Methodism is actually a form of, of uh, spirituality or form of, of Christianity that is intended to create a method for someone uh, uh, kind of channeling Christ consciousness, okay? Now, I, that, I, did, I had no idea that that's, that's actually where the, the name Methodism comes from, but that was implicit in my engagement in spirituality from a young age. I never got caught up in the dogmatic teachings of, of Christianity, but I, I was very moved by uh, the quality of consciousness that Christ possessed, you know, the, the, you know, kind of open oceanic love, um, uh, capacity to heal others by, uh, you know, by touch on the one hand, but also through love, honestly. Um, so, uh, so, you know, uh, as I grew, um, I pushed against the cage of Christianity a bit more by, by 16, I was reading, uh, Buddhism by 17, I started reading Jung actually. Um, uh, and, uh, so, and then, up until that point, I had I had wanted to either be a a um, 
a neurosurgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon. I wanted to cut up the head or the heart. And um, once I- To destroy it or see what was on the inside. I guess probably a little bit of both. And to, well, I mean, really for the purposes of healing, you know, Um, but it's certainly a, a very Western allopathic approach to healing, sometimes absolutely necessary, just to be clear. Um, you know, sometimes surgery is absolutely necessary. But once I once I uh, started reading Jung and I and another aspect of my consciousness awakened, um, I realized that I wouldn't find gratification in medical practice. And you know, I went to college, decided to become a religious studies major. Um, my the the spring semester of my sophomore year, um, and I, I won't get into. There were a lot of psychodynamic things going on that I, I, I won't get into. <laughs> Parental divorce, yada, yada, you know, all of the, let, let, I'll just say the shattering of youthful idealism. You know, maybe that's a, a good way of putting it on lots of different levels. Heard so my, yeah, so my spring semester of my sophomore year, I decided that I wanted to meditate, okay? I had already studied Buddhism, uh, but really hadn't, and I'd done meditation a couple of times, but really hadn't done formal meditation. So I read, I was reading a Vedic text and it, and it kind of like gave a prescription of like, okay, you know, do this much meditation this much a day and do this practice this much a day and do this practice this much a day. And within two years, you know, you'll kind of go through this process of release and growth. And I was an impetuous 19 year old who didn't feel that I had two years to spare. So I figured just to double it all up and to, to meditate, uh, uh, incessantly, which I did for three months. Um, it was it was about a half hour formal meditation in the morning, about a half hour formal meditation in the evening. I made every walk into a walking meditation. I made every meal into a, an eating meditation. I made every uh, exercise into an exercise meditation, every class into a meditative process. And honestly, at the end of three months, my reality system started to collapse. So, uh, so at that point, uh, uh, I, I found myself flooded with, uh, well, and meditation became very, very rich, by the way. Uh, toward the end of that three months, I moved into a place in meditation. It's, it's almost hard to describe in language because language is a completely different system uh, of representation. Um, uh, but it was like I, I penetrated through a thought wall and I felt that I was at the top of a funnel and I felt that my consciousness was slowly circulating and moving down this funnel. Okay. Um, now, mind you, I was 19. I didn't know anything about chakras. I didn't know anything about Kundalini. I didn't, I was not well-versed. I didn't know anything about the stuff that I now know. Um, but, but I can now recognize some of what was happening at that point. So uh, that culminated in uh, me being overwhelmed with sensations of em- energy, feeling uh, energy constricted around my head, feeling my head expanded and exploded. Uh, I, I also experienced a lot more synchronicities during that period of time, thinking of someone and then and then literally seeing them, you know, come out from behind a building, walk toward me. You know, this was happening over, you know, like a lot. Uh, uh, and uh, and so it was too much. And uh, I decided to take a break from school. I, that actually got me onto the analytic couch four days a week. So uh, so at 19, I started psychoanalysis with uh, with someone four days a week um, uh, on the couch. Actually, the first two, three sessions, I resisted the couch. And then I felt that this guy was just looking into the depths of my soul. Like, you know, his energy was very deep and he was just, you know, and, and I just had one of those moments, maybe it was more than three or four, two or three sessions, but I had one of those moments where I was like, I just can't do this. And he said, why don't you try the couch? 
So I got on the couch and I just relaxed and kind of gave myself to this process. And, and, you know, so I was in analysis four days a week for maybe three months, then cut back down to cut down to three days a week and did that for about a year and a half. Um, and that entire period of time, I was kind of, uh, 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 very open and receptive. And I used my analysis as an anchor to the world. So that period of time uh, was very rich in terms of different awarenesses that I was developing, both uh, intellectually, philosophically, and experientially. Um, uh, and that actually uh, is what brought me into the field of psychology. I felt that, uh, that you know, I was, in, I was interested in understanding what I experienced. I was, I was also, I'm still interested in, you know, who the dude behind the curtain is, you know? Uh, you know, we can only get glimpses of this, this mysterium tremendum, this huge mystery, you know? Um, and sometimes the glimpses, the glimpses that we get are actually staring into the jaws of an abyss that we can never understand. And it's not always so rosy and dozy as, uh, as some might uh, suggest in different spiritual circles. So, so, uh, so I had the experience of my analyst being very open and receptive. And I felt, I, it was a fascinating experience. I felt that I was, when I went into analysis, I felt that I was being held within his consciousness. I don't know how else to put it, but it felt like he was able to expand his consciousness to the point that I was able to kind of reside in it and uh, uh, come to greater awarenesses within it. Almost like our consciousnesses somehow were coalescing in a way that was not able to be verbalized. And, um, and that is what I brought to my own uh, psychotherapeutic process when I started seeing patients at the age of 22. Um, uh, uh, I um, tried to make each session into a meditative process in which I was able to open my panels, let's say, and get my own thought out of the way so that I could feel the person on the other side of it. Um, and. Uh, and over the years, a lot of different awarenesses have developed and a lot of different experiences have also happened. So that's a little bit of, you know, uh, a, a little introduction about kind of um, what, what I experienced, uh, you know, kind of on the front end of this energy awareness stuff, you know, throughout my career, just to, I guess, to supplement that, you know, I've been, I've continued to be very interested in allopathic medicine, you know, uh, I'm also interested in, uh, Alternative medicine, I'm very interested in plant medicine. I, I play with essential oils and make my own deodorant and skin creams and all those kinds of fun things. Um, you know, uh, and uh, I've, I've also studied, uh, you know, uh, various forms of indigenous uh, spiritual practices. Um, and I was, I was in Santa Fe for about five years. Uh, during that period of time, I worked at a college uh, for four years, I taught there one year and then was hired as dean. Uh, and I worked there for four years as dean and also taught. And that college is a college that was born out of, it offers, a, 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 uh, it's called Southwestern College in Santa Fe. It offers a master's in counseling and a master's in art therapy. Um, it was actually born out of an aura balancing tradition. So it was founded, the, the lineage of that school was based on energy medicine. And um, the way that education was done there was unlike anything that you will find uh, in uh, in most places, and definitely, definitely on the East Coast. Arguably, it's a, you know it's a one of a kind kind of place. So, um, so anyway, that's a little bit about me. Right now, I teach uh, undergraduate. I have a practice. Um, you know, I 
I've worked incessantly throughout my career. So all of these awarenesses have, have developed, you know, uh, while raising a family, while very, having a very, very earthly, <laughs> a very, very earthly life with a lot of concrete, real demands. So, um, yeah. Well, one of the things I remember and, uh, for, for our, our, um, uh, millions of viewers and listeners, hi, how are you? Um, one of the things I recall about you, Webb, from the days we met at the Derner Institute, uh, was that you were always working, that you needed to work. And at the same time, this spiritual bent, which was very powerful, I mean, it was one of the reasons you and I seemed to get along in the old days that we, we immediately had uh, some points of contact, um, was that you had this balance of, of pragmatism. Oh, you needed to survive is the feeling I had. That, that's what I remember after 30 years. Um, and uh, at the same time, it, it seemed to be this this hunger for knowing, uh, well, as you said, the man behind the curtain and what he represents. And as you, you described uh, that funnel, um, I couldn't help but, well, a couple of questions and thoughts popped into mind. One was the, uh, superficially anyway, the similarity between your life and Carl Jung's. You know, the the son of, uh, you know, the in some respects, schizotypal and that uh, Jung had lots of visions and perceptual experiences and, and very fluid boundaries between his unconscious mystical processes and that, that formidable mind. Um, but he was the son of a very philosophically oriented um, Lutheran minister uh, who, in his case, had kind of lost his faith as opposed to simply, uh, as you said, becoming an atheist medicine, Methodist. Um, that, that tradition, uh, that, that parallel fascinates me. But in talking about that funnel and the energy, the question came to mind, if you recall, um, where did the funnel seem to spiral down into? Did you have a I sense never, of that? I, you know, I, 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 did, I did not know. Okay, and um, and I and actually at the time I had a fantasy that if I ever had that experience again, I would want to be hooked up to all kinds of different monitoring equipment to see what's happening physiologically as this is happening with my consciousness. And and uh, I've not been in that kind of controlled condition, to be honest. I, I I did not know what was at the bottom of the funnel, but every time I meditated, I found myself moving deeper into it, and I felt that at the base of the funnel was something very profound um, that, would, uh, that would provide me with some kind of answer, let's say. Now, later, later in life, I did have different, uh, an experience in which I breathed to the point, and this was very similar to that. I breathed to the point that, uh, um, that I lost awareness of everything but breath and I could feel energy coming out of me uh, uh, um, and then at a certain point I collapsed and there was an, a huge explosion of light. Now, whether that was the bottom of the funnel, I don't know, but that happened right before I found this staff, the, the second experience that I'm talking about. So I don't, I, I can't, you know, I can't, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, this is the bottom line, you know, and, and this is what I tell people. I'm not a great disciple because I, I, I have authority issues, okay? So I'm not great at being a disciple of anyone. I like to, to discover things on my own. And I'm also not a good guru because I reject the whole, the whole idea of guruism, 
pretty much. So, uh, you know, so, so that's why a lot of this stuff, I simply don't know what it is. You know, how do we represent this in language? You know, how, you know, how, you know, how much of this is just my, you know, idiosyncratic experience, you know, and how much of this is actually uh, a, a form of experiences that other can, others can tap, hopefully much more gently than I have. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and use in daily life in some kind of way as a way of being more connected to themselves, to their loved ones, to the earth, to, uh, to the greater society. The purpose of healing and therapy uh, in the broadest sense, however we approach it, you know, um, one version of which was Freud's freedom to love and work, but with or without Freud, the bottom line is the bottom line. How do you live more fully? connect more meaningfully but uh you know i don't want to be too much of a conductor here but joe you know the the question you raised the topic you raised a little while ago um as we were preparing uh i think dovetails nicely with this the idea of the individual getting lost in this uh world of um generalities and data and uh that to me was uh such a great jumping off point because for me web one one of the fascinations here is how you've lived in both worlds so to speak the the mystical the healing the uh ineffable stuff and you're a guy who works and has a family and plays and uh is you don't live in some rarefied uh spiritual world so you know the the, the middle way um so to speak, but let me turn it over to you fellas. What do you want to say? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I brought up the, uh, uh, Carl Jung's undiscovered self. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the individual gets lost in statistical analysis and, um, uh, as much as I think that we live in a hyper individualistic um, society, uh, I think that, uh, and I think there's an element to this in the um, in the young piece that, that uh, without the fully realized individual, you lose the uh, the power of the collective as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that you know goes right into all the, the marxism and <laughs> all the stuff i like um but yeah i i'm glad you drew that um that dichotomy of the of the like living a kind of regular life in <laughs> in the real world um uh because yeah i didn't i didn't even realize that it would uh fit in that well yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I like that, Joe. It's a good uh, entry point into like current affairs or whatever. Um, I think it's quite interesting where, you, you know, this whole data monitoring of people, how it kind of pushes out the individuality or the subjectivity of people's agency. So, you know, we become quite lazy, like everything from what direction to drive on Google to you know, order your fedora or Uber food home. It's like the, the judgment of the individual gets more and more uh, not needed, one could say. We don't need individual judgment. We just need to order what's been proposed on our phone 
when we step into our home at night after working or whatever. So in that context, I think it's very kind of salient, this, this idea of the individuated self being able to be in touch with both kind of group phenomena and let's say the kind of more oceanic wide um, consciousness. And on the other hand, the more concrete um, world out there. Uh, where language and politics and material issues such as money and time and, you know, those kind of two dimensions. So in that aspect, I think that that maybe archetype or, or that individual, you know, that, that, can, that can access that funnel, maybe, that the web have been talking about, if that's the funnel, I don't know, but kind of somehow hover between those polarities um, and I guess that's what happens in psychoanalysis too, right? Like there are regressive, one uses that word, moments like down to something. And then there are movements up towards a more, um, let's say, concrete and well-defined uh, space. So I think that that's a very good, that's a very good place to, to talk a little bit about, I think, because it's very important, uh, not the least in terms of this kind of data, dataizing, how do you say, datorizing. Of, of our society. Datification. Well, what, yeah. what, what, one thing that I just want to point out is that what you, what, what we're talking about is not, it, this is not, a, this is an archetypal struggle, actually. Mm -hmm. the, the, the struggle between collectivism and individuality is an archetypal struggle. And you can see that manifest. I mean, you know, like even in like Star Wars, you can see it manifest everywhere. Okay. But, but what, but, but uh, Martin, as you were talking, what came to my mind was the fact that this, this exactly is the tension that it, that it exists between religion and spirituality, okay? That if you take a, a, a conventionally religious approach, it was the authority of the church that mm -hmm. told people how to live and what they were supposed to do. Now it's the authority of yeah. likes you, what's liked, yeah. you know, how we're connected in this kind of way. This is now the new church, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the, the Gnostic approach, okay? Uh, or or a, 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 a way of engaging mystically you know, or we can call it a Gnostic or a, a mystical approach to, to religion or spirituality means that you become a channel for the spiritual energies that you're trying to contact. Not that you just worship them outside of yourself, mm. okay? But that you actually become a conduit for those kinds of, those kinds of energies. And that, you, and that you develop these relationships on a, uh, uh, or you do, develop this awareness in terms of direct experience, as opposed to on the authority of the external. So I just wanted to point that out that this that this is, you know, th this we can now, you know, kind of see, you know, we can see this archetypal struggle between the authority of the individual and the authority of the collective um uh uh, uh even within, you know, the the tracing uh, religious and spiritual uh traditions. Uh it, we can we can see it in terms of economic tradition. I mean, you know, this this is a pattern. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in is sacred geometry. And with sacred geometry what you know, uh, is that there are these patterns that underlie various phenomena. So for example, this, you know, this, this ammonite. Whoa. Yes. I, yes. Nothing like a little it chaos. It escaped. Nothing like a little chaos. All right. So this ammonite, this piece of ammonite, wow. okay, is, uh, uh, that's a golden spiral. Golden ratio. This is a golden spiral. And so this is the same spiral that we would see, uh, uh, you know, uh, as the shape of the Milky Way, it's the same spiral that we see when we uh, watch water go down the drain. Okay, uh, so so you know, uh, so that's one of the things that I'm very interested in. Actually, is like where do we see these patterns 
in, in various uh, iterations, various incarnations, various constellations, you know? Isn't that uh, fractality? Speaking of Santa Fe, isn't there a university down there, like the Complexity University or something, Santa Fe Institute for like complexity studies and things like that? I don't know. That's a good question. I know. I know that there's, uh, uh, you know, they, they definitely have. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, um, Santa Fe College, but I don't think that that uh, that's more of an art school, if I recall. Okay. You know, that, that's what I recall. Um, well, I think there there is a program down there. I think Michael Conforte, uh, the Jungian who works on oh, complexity the, theory. Creativity and madness. That one. Or no? Um, he does that. Uh, he's also written pa uh, Freedom, Form, and Fate, which was very much about uh, the archetypal patterns and how they repeat. I just want to point something out, uh, which I think will, it's called will Santa be... Santa Fe Institute. You got okay. it? Yeah, Santa Fe Institute is called. Cool. Uh, um, see, I, I immediately, uh, as you were talking about the... Um, repeating pattern throughout nature of the one favorite example of which is the the nautilus or the ammonite uh and how that that not just the fact that it's a spiral but the actual proportions the ratio which had been i forget was, was it pythagoras or was the, the ancient greeks knew the significance of this well, ratio the egyptians knew i mean before the greeks yeah. you know it's phi yeah Hence, one point it's archetypal Oh, yeah. It is archetypal, meaning it is uh, pe people mistake often uh, Jung's notion of the archetype as being just like uh, Kant's uh, um, uh, forms, uh, namely the, these cosmological or, or, or ontological uh, patterns, the, the idea that there is a pure universe of which we are a degraded example, um, or rather the, even the real world you know the parable of plato's cave where uh, one person points out to the rest that they are just like people sitting in a cave watching the shadows of a light behind them flickering on the cave wall mistaking the shadows for the real world but the real world is um behind around we're enveloped in it um but i, I could imagine the scientific positivistic a uh, person saying, ah, oh, yeah, that's just physics, you know, so Milky Way patterns, it's all math. And I just want to say one of the uses, use, uh, useful areas of Jung, uh, only because he was one of many to channel this idea, but he concretized it for the Western mind reasonably well, um, was precisely what he means by the archetype, which is not that it is um, kind of the, the way humans perceive the constants of nature. Uh, Jung's fundamental uh, assumption was that psyche is a dimension of nature. Um, we do not live in a meaningless material universe. We are the self-awareness of the universe. We are the universe waking up and watching itself. And that in a way, um, the fact that these patterns repeat and that they are meaningful to us and that these fractal um, uh, repetitions on every scale of nature uh, are things that we not only perceive but utilize and and make part of human life and then allow us to look deeper into the universe of which we are the consciousness um, allows us to see that the archetype is the eternal pattern as it is reflected in the mind and body of the human being 
um, who happens to be at a sort of a central subjective point in nature. So the idea that these spirals mean something, it's not just that we like pretty spiral things and we love, uh, you know, there's this notion of uh, apophenia, that we see patterns in just physical mathematical stuff. Um, that doesn't capture it. Uh, we make it meaningful. And the fact that this pertains to our psychical life, our spiritual life, the fact that we can find something beautiful and divine in what a mathematician might say is merely a process, mm. uh, merely a proportion, is what makes psychology so much fun. And spirituality, this lends into everything. Um, and how this plays too, I think, Joe, into the Marxist problem, you know, the whole notion of religion as the opiate of the masses. And Webb, you pointed out that uh, this is a similar tension between religion and spirituality. We have to draw a distinction too between religion and spirituality that religion as fed to the masses through the authority structure is like Oxycontin uh, being being just dumped from a helicopter into the Appalachians pretty much so that everybody can get on board. Whereas spirituality is nothing more or less than the individual waking up to his place in a bigger world. He can't fit into language or the linguistic mind. So Marx being a guy who liked the idea of the collective and what it can accomplish. Well, here we are you know, talking we, about the collective realm. Do, do I complicate things too much if we throw in uh, planet Earth and climate change into this whole discussion? And, and also, I, I and hope also, so. And also the frequency of the Earth. If I could throw it, since you brought yeah. up Earth, I think yeah, go, yeah. mentioning the frequency of the Earth, which is 7.8 hertz, is also important and can, can maybe be woven into that in this discussion as well. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so what uh, about that? Or what, what were you thinking about that? Like, tell oh, okay, me more. So, I've never heard about this. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So, so, Re so now, web resonance, sound, frequency. We can go places with this. Let's go places then. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, um, this is this is kind of fascinating stuff. And then you know, whatever. I, I, uh, I, I guess I'm aptly named because web means weaver. And one thing that I do is that I tend to weave things together. I, I, there are different times in my life that I feel like my task is just to integrate as much different stuff together as I possibly, you know, as I, you know, as I possibly can. So, so one of the things that, uh, and, and because I experience energy and, and at some point I'd like to return to some of my experience of energy, because I think that it, it could just be instructive, but we'll put that to the side. Uh, um, uh, one of the things that, uh, as I experience energy, I experience it as frequency. I experience high pitches, low pitches, these kinds of things. It's hard to describe. But um, uh, as I've done more study, and particularly as I uh, um, uh, returned to the piano and started uh, composing music in, in my uh, in my 40s, uh, I became kind of fascinated by resonance and sound. And, uh, and I was just like poking around and I found that the earth has a resonant and the earth produces a frequency of 7.82 Hertz. Okay. Now it's not always 7.82. It's not a constant. Actually, uh, a couple of years ago, it shot up to, to like 42 Hertz for some reason. Now, now this is kind of fascinating. This is where it gets help. This is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This, is what, this, this is where it gets fascinating. Okay. If you look at brainwave patterns, delta waves, zero to four hertz, theta waves, four to, hmm, 
about 7.82. Alpha waves start right about there, okay? Alpha and theta, this is right at where we fall asleep. When we go into a meditative place, the 7.82 is an ideal frequency for us to produce, okay? So when we, when we go into nature and we allow ourselves to be bathed in this frequency away from all of this sh shit that, that has a much, much higher frequency, this is all high frequency stuff, okay? So, so uh, um, and then, you know, above alpha, alpha goes up to about 12, you know, eight, it's eight to tw eight-ish to 12-ish, okay? Uh, then we have beta uh, from 12-ish uh, from to 35-ish, 38-ish, and then gamma, which is about 38-ish to about 42-ish or 43. Gamma is not well understood. Gamma you know, gamma waves that we produce, they still don't understand the highest frequency waves that we produce. So, so in terms of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, awareness of the earth and how this connects back into indigenous practice and uh, uh, climate change and the fact that we are all part of one organism, I can, it is hard for me to imagine that is a, it is a coincidence that the earth produces the frequency that is perfectly soothing to our consciousness. We evolved here, you know. So, so now, we, you know, we 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 develop this technological idea of ownership of the earth, whatever that is. You know, I can like carve off a piece of land and say, oh yeah, I it's own. It's mine to break, oh, slice up, and it's like Daffy Duck. It's mine. It's mine. It's all mine. You know, back in the in the back in the day. So, uh, um, you know, uh, the reality is that even the idea of ownership of the earth is a is a. a, a, a a fundamental idea that skews the reality of, of what we are as creatures. We, 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 the earth owns us. Yeah. You know? So, so anyway, that, that's, that's a little bit of, of what I have to say about kind of frequency and resonance and, you know, just, you know, some of our natural relationship. The other thing is this, you know, sympathetically, when we're, when we're exposed to different patterns, different brainwave patterns, we start producing them. Okay, so so uh, so we sympathetically start producing brainwaves when we're exposed to certain frequencies, and and so anyway, that's yeah. I, well, you know, I thought when you were um, naming those those frequencies, I uh, I thought of uh, Star Trek, and those are actually the names of the quadrants of the galaxy. It's Star Trek. That's funny. Alpha, beta, gamma, and uh, and I think delta. That's really funny. So yeah, oh, so I, which joining... one is the best place to live in? Which one is the like ideal galaxy, or are they one... all? The one Earth is in is um, Alpha. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and that that you know, knowing Star Trek and the uh, the kind of like like science consultants they would have on the show and stuff, that's probably not an accident. <laughs> when we get to M eighty seven, we find that's where where that's where you go to party. <laughs> but it's hard to get there, and the bouncers are awful. But. <laughs> but you know, another another kind of dichotomy or or one of those. Um, tensions like we spoke about the individualist individual versus kind of a collective strain uh, another one is the kind of and i guess web you would have a lot of experience from the meditation maybe like one on the one hand the desire to know to clinch to 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 grasp i guess is maybe a buddhist term i'm not sure but on the other hand to to let go to surrender yeah. to fold whatever is the best mm -hmm. words here so that's another kind of tension couple in a way that is also quite salient in this discussion because this, you know, like we talk about physics, we talk about fractals, like there's also a kind of desire to know one could, one could, one could use that 
uh, as a kind of descriptive metaphor for some of the, you know, the people, the institutions, the, the scientists, the researchers, that they, they want to clinch deeper and deeper and deeper into this. They need to know something. Mm -hmm. and, and the other picture would then be the opposite, to release, to, to float, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, this would be, I guess, the negative capability that we spoke about in, in previous episodes of the Keatsian concept of, of not grasping after, what is it he says, irritable facts and yeah, the irritable so, grasping after fact and reason. Yeah, that that I refer to that as apprehension, not comprehension, mm -hmm. but apprehension. I, I I forget who who else mm -hmm. refers to that, but you know, apprehension yeah, of beauty is a term by Meltzer actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's so mm -hmm. it's just kind of being receptive, you know. Yeah. So, so so yeah, it's another polarity of mm -hmm. of are we going to impose or are we going to be receptive? You know, are we you know, uh, um, uh, yeah. It's very all of this is very very rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even like dissecting bodies or brains, or like you said, Dan, you buy a piece of land to, to start destroying it or whatever you joked just previously here. That's also a kind of image of that, of, of you know, dissecting, wanting to, to, to know. Uh, so I think that's a very important kind of element of, you know, not the only one, but one way to look at science, the kind of positivistic paradigm of, you know, the past hundred years or so of like setting up uh, setting up a, a way of living that is almost divorced from the from the kind of well, natural conditions from where it emerged in the beginning. Right, and right, and if you think about William's William James's work, you know, variety of religious experiences that was written actually about a hundred years ago. He talks about the reality of the unseen like it's just a normal thing. You know, he talks about these other phenomena that now, like you know, like you said, with the positivist, positivistic or focus on behavioral stuff, that really kind of got cranking in the '40s and '50s. You know, uh, and I guess a little before that, with with uh, frontal lobotomies in 1935 and stuff like that. You know, uh, 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 but but uh, it was not that long ago that there was a greater acceptance or receptivity to the fact that there is we don't know much. Okay, on a physical level, just as an as a as an illustration of how little we know, okay, or how little we can even perceive. All right, we in our eyes, we have two. I mean, we we have three cones, right? Dogs and cats have two cones. They can't see as much color as we can. We have three cones. Some extraordinary people have four cones. Uh, almost, I think all that have been detected are women. Okay. Um, My wife the, is one of those. She can uh, she can pick colors and remember them that I can't see the difference. She remembers the differences over the course of decades and doesn't understand why other people don't see them. That's fascinating. Now, the mantis prawn, the mantis prawn has 13 cones in its eye. What the hell does it see? <laughs> right? Have you ever I mean, thought of the... Of the light spectra? We can only see 5% of the light spectra. What are we not seeing? You know, yeah. how much of what, how much of the audible spectrum can we not see, you know, here, you know, what's there that we don't know? Yeah, this reminds me of a point you made, the Joe, HP. in an episode, uh, in an episode way back. Do you remember that? You took that example of like a straw being dent, like, you know, the, the straw yeah. that comes under the surface, like certain animals can can detect uh, the difference of what it, how it looks a lot better than, right. than like, like you, you made an example of birds that are fishing, for example. And yeah, you, like, I remember you saying like, see, yeah, birds like don't see the distortion, but we do for whatever reason. Um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, you just you hear something like that alone, and it's just like, well, that's weird. Like, what? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> so me. Much of, of, like, what I believe is just 
because I, these are the the eyes that evolved you know <laughs> like yeah right and 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 for me one of the things that has been important is to try to push beyond my various sensory systems if that makes sense you know because yeah. because i know that there's more there um uh that we that we usually are taught to ignore to be totally honest and what you is know, your yeah. Do you have a take on this? Uh, now, now I'm, you know, this is not like, I don't know this, the whole ins and out, but the kind of Bayesian brain and the predictive brain, you know, the idea of the brain as a hypothetical generating machine that is always wrong. So in a way, there is always a kind of constant controlled hallucinations. There are some philosophers that use that term. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they basically say that what we constantly do, you know, our, all our waking time is project very good, but always off. Uh, kind of hallucinatory predictions, and then we gather the feedback through our sensory system. Uh, you know how wrong, how much dissonance is caused here, and in the best cases, we're you know mature and aware enough to update our predictions, even sure. though that's hard work. But sure. but that's a kind of view of of uh, of the brain as as being one of those kind of predictive coding machines, essentially. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and I think that I think that something like beginner's mind in Zen, okay, is all about allowing yourself to relax out of those predictions yeah. you know if that makes sense mm -hmm. you know uh, uh beginner's mind in zen means that we experience something even if we've experienced it a thousand times before we experience it as though it is the first time we have experienced it. naivete as a virtue exactly exactly uh, uh grounded naivete individuated naivete which is different you know going back to this idea of being you know kind of a, an undeveloped self being sucked into an undeveloped horde you know an individuated naivete is a naivete that is able to have authority about what is it is experiencing okay so if you look at, at the tradition of zen archery which my analyst my first analyst turned me on to to this he actually Eugene had me, the, yeah the, the uh the art of what is it zen and the art of archery yeah mm -hmm. yeah he had me read that uh, uh, within the first week or two of doing analysis. And he said, well, this is pretty much what we're going to do. If, if It's a great read. It's a short read, uh, um, but it's, it's absolutely astounding. It has to do with developing alternative senses through slow repetition. That a Zen archer, when, when a Zen archer becomes a master, a Zen archer can hit a, it hit a bullseye blindfolded at 100 yards. You know, because the Zen archer feels the target inside of themselves. Now, the process of becoming a Zen archer is, you know, first you go out and you have a longbow and you pull the string. You can't touch the arrow at first. You just pull the string and you don't even let it go. You just pull it. You just pull it. You just pull it. And the master watches you. And when the master senses, okay, you're ready to move along, then you're able to pull and release, pull and release. And you do this for weeks or months until the master says, okay, you're ready to go on to the next step. And, and so it's this process by which a person gradually attunes themselves to subtler energies uh, and subtler awarenesses that exist within the self that connect tangibly to the outside world. You have a concrete- Grounded yeah. naivete, sorry. No, it's, I've never heard that term. I love it, grounded naivete. It's also- I, I mean, a, It's a new yeah, one. It's so. a paradoxical <laughs> phrase in a way, but it's beautiful. Like. It's a it's a state worth <laughs> worth searching for or working for, I think. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, I, I think there's a potential dovetail here, and that uh, what I hear you describing, Webb, um, 
is a certain approach to the collapsing of dichotomies. Um, that is not a matter of everything becoming the sort of primordial soup that consciousness sort of loses itself in, but it becomes a way of greatly expanding the the envelope of our awareness. And by the envelope, uh, using sort of a quasi-musical idea, um, the notion that that time and our relationship to the present, we both become more grounded in the present, but our consciousness and our agency and subjectivity expand so that the moment, the psychic time, becomes much broader. So that what we consider to be the present is a, an, a, a, a much greater scope, um, which allows both for what you'd call insight, enlightenment, it in, uh, allows for such um, uh, apocryphal and yet true uh, notions as the blindfolded archer hitting the bullseye at a hundred yards. Um, it also, for me, uh, and Joe, if you want to grab a hold of any of this, um, links to, um, this is going to be a bit of a stretch. I'll see if I can pull it off. Uh, one problematic distinction between the capitalist and socialist mindsets, uh, leading us back to our, our relation to the environment, to the planet as well, in the sense that I was just taking notes before trying to sketch out an idea that the uh, at the psychological heart of, of capitalism, you have the, that Randian libertarian idea of the self-reliant, uh, independent self, um, uh, which sort of, yeah, the, the, the severing of the connection between people, the, the willful and self-satisfied severing of that um, oneness that all the other traditions uh, have eventually tried to get to. And that one of the consequences of this, you know, talking about the slicing up of the land, um, I've always been fascinated um, with the reason why, potential reasons why it is primarily uh, the right-wing, conservative, capitalist um, end of things, side of things, that uh, comprises the climate change deniers. And I thought of one element of that, of course, being that um, people don't like to feel guilty or ashamed. And the idea that somehow uh, it requires treating the earth as an object and thereby destroying it in order to um, really fulfill the, the capitalist notion of, of finding and selling and buying resources. And that this is somehow the natural order of things. The natural order of things is for us to shit where we eat and then sell the, you know, sell the parts. Um, but there was also the dovetail of um, the capitalist mindset, climate denying and fundamentalist religion. And one of the precepts of fundamentalist Christianity anyway, or Christianity itself, is that we are the stewards over the planet and its beings other than the human. Um, and so I couldn't help but see, you know, whether it's accidental, meaningless, or somehow useful, that one reason for a uh, capitalist Christian to deny climate change is that 
there is a fundamental guilt and fear in the notion that we have, like Moses, uh, striking the rock uh, in order to demand that water pour forth and thereby being denied access into the promised land. Uh, that capitalist is afraid that he was given the job to watch over the planet and instead he uh, broke it up and sold pieces of it and is therefore in trouble. And so if the climate, uh, if the climate of the earth is falling apart, you've been a very bad boy. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that, not to be overly simplistic, but you know, um, uh, there is a fair uh, proportion of the evangelical community that are also, you know, deny climate change, you know, and, and fall within the more conservative uh, 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 political continuum. A recent study um, uh, about cognitive uh, process indicated that those who were raised in strictly evangelical homes tend to uh, struggle with certain forms of cognitive deficits later in life because they are taught at a young age to accept on the basis of faith and belief and not to question. And so it disarms a person's critical thinking capacities. Now, obviously, that's a generalization. I'm not saying that everyone raised in an evangelical household uh, 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 struggles with this, just to, to qualify that. But as a general trend, it's fascinating that 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 uh, that at a young at a young age we can be taught a, a mindset that essentially paralyzes our capacity to think analytically and and really to individuate as we uh, as we uh, uh, get older. You know, to actually reach our own conclusions, to develop our own authority instead of a, a form of authoritarianism that we have modeled. Um, and, you know, uh, living within your own authority is very different from channeling negative animus uh, that, that you are either possessed by as an archetype or you have modeled or some combination thereof. Um, so anyway, those are my thoughts. Good ones. Joe, I saw you nodding at a certain point. Uh, I don't mean nodding off, I mean nodding no, knowingly. Um, about... Maybe now, maybe now, Dan, Dan, maybe now we can edit this out because I've written in the chat, I need to go and piss. <laughs> so I've, That's I've kind to... of a radical idea. <laughs> yeah. So we can edit this out. It was a good break anyway, and we'll give it back yeah, to Joe. Yeah, I'll, just I'll pause us. So, Joe, uh, you have thoughts about the socialist capitalist angle here? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, that is a really good point because the um, the one of those big differences between the two is that capitalism relies on the, uh, you know, never ending acquisition and consumption of resources. Um, because in order to have a, a stable economy or whatever it is, you just have to keep, keep it going, keep growing the, the pile. Um, and that is one of the advantages of socialism is that it doesn't need that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th I think so that, that is a, a huge, um, uh, important difference. I think that. Uh, you know, socialism is not necessarily like the uh, perfect way to like end over consumption. You know, I think that there's a lot of good that could be done by like 
uh, distributing resources more fairly and like, you know, giving uh, more people land ownership and, and, and uh, access to resources and, and all of that. Um, but, they, you know, that doesn't mean that we won't still be overusing our plot of, of land and resources. Um, and that's why, you know, it's like a, a, it should be a continuous process to like keep improving upon. Um, how yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, um, uh, what was I saying? It should be this continuous process of improving upon how we, um, how we handle all of that, the, you know, the way we use resources and, and how we renew them and, and, uh, and all of that. Well, but, and, and I think that goes even beyond the whole capitalist socialist model. I mean, that goes to the fundamental nature of economy. If we had a, a resource-based economy in which there were an obligation to replenish the earth, if that was actually a part of the economy, right? Okay, yeah. that if you take, you have to give that. I mean, and, and they've played with this with like, you know, carbon credits and, you know, like that kind of stuff, but it's lame. It's really, really lame. Right. But if there were actually a, a basic philosophy that if we take, we have to give back. If that were, if that were somehow economized, okay? Uh, yeah. and, and became an inherent part of the economy, then honestly, you know, uh, uh, that could be compatible with a capitalistic or a socialistic or a social, you know, a democratic socialistic, you know, pr perspective. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but the focus on, uh, um, on rampant consumptionism yeah. is one of the things that's killing us. Right. Individually uh, and as a species. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a lot to be said. You know, I talk about Star Trek all the time, and I think that in some ways you could call their society socialist. Um, in a lot of ways, it's sort of maybe even a little beyond that that distinction because it is more of, of what you're talking about. And it's like, um, uh, you know, they're, they're beyond the overuse problem. And... Uh, the a big thing too is that the the uh, the earth is united right so there's no like real country borders um and i think that's a big part of it as well and that, you know that's sort of like a third like pillar to bring into it is that like uh yeah well a big part of the problem is that the u.s has what it has and then like we see something in venezuela and we're like well be nice if we had that and, and it's like well yeah but if we didn't see venezuela as so different from from us then uh we wouldn't need to just go and like grab it from there to use over here it would be like well okay it's, we're all part of the same thing here so how do we how do we do this and yeah i think there's there's also um some good examples in native american tribes i i think it's the uh the Navajo and the, the Iroquois had like, um, you know, certain elements that you could definitely compare to socialism or communism. Um, but like you said, it also had this, this like uh, element of uh, rebuilding or replenishing or not, not using up whatever you're using. Um, and yeah, whatever uh, economic system 
you end up with if you are not doing that then you're kind of screwed <laughs> yeah it feels to me that we're kind of closing in on a little bit of what could be a way to bring together what we've been talking about like you said dan about the the kind of reconciling of paradoxes i think that to and fro that i infer from joe's uh, comment about replenishing from where you take it is a very useful image you know whether we talk like winnicottian terms of playing or we talk about music listening to a t- tune playing the next tune um you know responding upon another person's speech you respond back there is that kind of weaving in terms of of webb's uh, story about his name of synthesizing so i guess uh, in that image maybe we are kind of closing in on some core concept or fractal fractal pattern or something that has to do with the symbolizing function and integrating opposites and you know like you said um, putting pieces into that kind of individuated mature self so i guess if this sounds like a good idea to you maybe there that's a way into to you web if you have like experienced to whatever it is i'm trying to talk about here if you have kind of you know energetical experiences of that or or kind of you know own experiences that relate to that from from your kind of spiritual perspective sure um, uh. sure I, yeah and i i would say that i have i have uh i guess mundane experiences and i have more sacred or uh altered experiences so i'll start with the mundane uh i hate leaf blowers dan you mentioned the leaf blower before i can't stand them i think that they're they constant here awful and if we if we think about if you just think about the nature of foliage okay and what happens in a natural environment the foliage falls from the trees it decomposes and it creates soil it neutrifies it neutrifies the earth that's what it does we can do this too all we have to do is mow over our leaves break them down into little parts and let them decompose into the earth okay um, it's not pretty but, no it's not pretty of course not and and so as i was taking a walk around the block earlier um it was it was a lovely walk in every way except that i passed two leaf blowers and and the uh and i was thinking you know i was aware you know obviously that we were going to be talking today and i was thinking okay so there's noise pollution right just on a on a concrete level you know there's noise pollution from these leaf blowers but then i but then think about it noise is just vibration so what's the energetic pollution underneath the noise that's stuff we don't even perceive that's stuff we don't even measure how far do those ripples if every action is like throwing uh, uh you know a stone into a pond what what invisible ripples of these kinds of things are uh, you know are are having effects effects that we would not even know about okay so so that's just a very kind of everyday example you know kind of a let's say a point of philosophical reflection for something that is simply a nuisance as far as i'm concerned um uh now uh in terms of other experiences um that i've had um i've had a lot of you know as i mentioned before i've kind of gone through this process of uh uh a different and it's it's really happened kind of almost at distinct parts of my life kind of the development of different energy awarenesses um and they and and there this happens uh at at uh, distinct at distinct points so Uh, around the same time that i had that experience of uh of collapse and finding the staff right before that uh it's hard to describe this i was finding my energy boundaries uh becoming very permeable 
okay? Uh, I had a different sense of who I was. I had a displaced sense of, of self. <clears throat> and I was, uh, this was while I was on internship. I, I was on internship at a psychiatric hospital. It's not a great idea to do energy work in a psychiatric hospital. It's, it, and, and I, I recognize that one of the things that happened to me is that I was carrying too much psychotic energy with me. Um, uh, but I was, I was also tutoring for Princeton Review at the time. And, and you know, I was, I was being flooded with all these different kind of energy experiences, you know, uh, uh, sensing evil at the psychiatric hospital, like a palpable sense of evil, you know, uh, uh, a palpable, like, like, you know, like these kinds of things. Uh, uh, but I was having both positive and negative experiences at this point. And I was tutoring someone uh, uh, and my, I felt very open and very permeable. I was tutoring, so, tutoring someone from the SAT. And then all of a sudden I had this experience it, and uh, I have a term for this now. I'll tell you what the term is in a second, but I started feeling a headache, but it was a very strange headache. I usually don't get headaches. Uh, it was a headache unlike I'd ha ever had before. It was a headache that felt like it was outside of my body and it was moving. Okay. And I was like, what is that? Okay. And I tracked this sensation. And then all of a sudden the door opened and the student's mother came in crying from the garage. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, so somehow, you know, uh, my consciousness was receptive enough to perceive an energy that was being transmitted beyond my beyond the beyond the scope of my normal senses, let's say. Okay, now that you know, th so that's one example. That was like a, 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 a an example, uh, you know, in my mid twenties. Uh, um, you know, and just to speak to this on a concrete level, also. All right, if you think about EEGs, and very few people actually think about EEGs in this way. EEGs take readings of our brain waves, but it does it from outside of our skull. Okay, so so. Uh, uh, that implies that the energy from our, our mundane brain waves penetrate beyond the boundary of our skull. They go at least to our scalp, okay? Um, and my experience actually of, of what the self is um, energetically is that it's probably more like a Tesla coil or a Van de Graaff generator in some ways, um, that, that we have an energetic core that takes on a torus shape just to, for those of you who, you know, for uh, you, you guys may all know what a torus is, but some of the audience members may not. It's a donut. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's basically a donut. It's like the magnetosphere of the earth, right? And so, and so it circulates positive and negative, you know, kind of energy. There's a positive pole, a negative pole, and it kind of moves back and forth within, uh, within this pattern. My experience is that, that each of us is a torus of sorts and that we have these tendrils that that you know kind of extend from us and when we connect with other people it's like our tendrils kind of connect and 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 we move in so so that was one of my early experiences now um uh as i developed more um you know i've I, like i said i've had so many experiences and some of them would be they would fall under parapsychological i don't consider myself psychic just to be clear you know but but weird shit happens when you're really receptive and you're hanging out with people all day long as a therapist so uh, uh, so there was one time I was talking with a patient and he, I knew he was into music and I, in my head, I heard Primus. I just heard Primus, you know, I'm like, what's your favorite band? He's like Primus. Okay. Um, uh, and within this all happened, like within the same week or two. Okay. What I'm about to describe. So I go through these phases where there's greater permeability and, and awareness. And then, and then it kind of closes up again. Um, I've gained more control 
maybe over the years. I'll, I'll describe that a little more. Uh, around the same period of time, I was teaching someone meditation. When I teach someone meditation, I can feel uh, uh, how deeply they go into meditation. Uh, so if I'm teaching a class of meditation, uh, uh, um, I can close my eyes and I can, I can feel which of the students are still in their head, which of the students have dropped into their bodies. I can feel uh, areas of higher frequency and lower frequency, okay? Um, uh, so, <clears throat> um, um, okay, so, so I was teaching this woman meditation. She'd been in a car accident and I was, I was you know, teaching her some uh, uh, relaxation therapy, as they say or they said, now it's more mindfulness. This was before the mindfulness movement. This was back in 2006, maybe. Um, uh, um, and, uh, and as I was teaching, you know, as I was talking through this meditation with her, I started uh, seeing uh, three-dimensional, like holographic butterflies, okay? And then I saw a holographic ham hand with a hammer, <laughs> kind of go down like in this almost like a strobe-like kind of way. Very strange. I'll describe a little perceptual stuff that I go through as well because that'll give context. So after the meditation, now, okay, just to be clear, this is how spirituality and psychology don't always go together, okay? What I'm telling you right now, this is a cautionary tale as well. So, uh, so after the meditation was done, I told her what I saw. I told her, oh, I saw butterflies around you and I you know, I saw this thing with a hammer and she's like, oh, you know, I have a butterfly. My, there are butterflies all over my kitchen. My grandmother, you know, uh, I think, you know, I think of her as a butterfly. And so, you know, the house is decorated with butterflies. And she was like, I don't know about the hand and the hammer. And then she was like, oh, you know what? When I was a child, I had a recurring nightmare that my father was chasing me and my brother through the house with a hammer, kind of like the shining, you know? Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, for my ego, it was like, how fucking cool is this? This is just cool, right? Um, she never came back. So how, you know, how therapeutic is it? You know, so, so, you know, like this has been a part of the tension that I have uh, navigated through uh, um, as a psychologist who sometimes gets glimpses of, of the intuitive. Um, uh, now, in terms of the perceptual, let me talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, uh, so um, what, uh, uh, when I'm living my daily life, I'm not in the energy zone. Okay. It's, uh, you know, there've been periods of my life, like when I was uh, 19, that I spent three months intensively in the energy zone and it, and it shattered my reality paradigm. It's dangerous um, to be in that uh, uh, space uh, too long. It's dangerous to be in that space uh, around uh, certain types of people um, because it uh, can be uh, fragmenting. That's, you know, that's my experience. So, uh, but what, what has developed for me at this point and this developed most clearly when I was the dean of the college and, and teaching at that college in Santa Bay that I mentioned, Southwestern. Uh, um, uh, and, it, and again, it was developing before that, but then I wasn't doing therapy. Like during that five years, I wasn't doing therapy. So it was easier actually to work with students and develop this awareness than it was to work with patients and develop this awareness. Uh, um, uh, what I what I've noticed is that that uh, when I start moving into that zone, first of all, obviously I have to pay attention to my breath. Okay, I focus on becoming very receptive. Okay, I focus on expanding myself, not from here. Okay, the intellect is not where you should you should ex expand yourself from. You have to expand yourself from your heart and your gut. 
you expand from here doing that with breath okay and then one of the things that happens is that i start experiencing a pixelation in my visual field so my visual field starts changing uh um it's everything starts feeling more fluid okay uh it doesn't feel as discrete and concrete as it does you know when i'm uh kind of uh, navigating through reality in a normal way. Um, and so a lot of times when I um, am doing clinical work, I, I move myself into that, you know, I move myself into that space. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, over the years, certain things, you know, I've started experiencing certain things that are reliable. So the first energy that I was able to, well, the first energy that I identified had to do with meditation. It had to do with whether someone was able to be deeply in a meditation or not so deeply, you know? Um, uh, and then I was working in group homes. A lot of the residents were lying. You know, it's adolescent group homes, so they all lie. I was a senior supervising psychologist. So I wanted to figure out how I could detect lies better. You know, I was just curious. I bought a book by, uh, a couple of books by Paul Ekman, uh, who, Dan, I don't know if you know this, he's a Derner alum. I don't know if you know, do you guys know who Ekman is? The faces, yeah. right? I yeah, have yeah. no idea. Yeah, 58, 1958. He's a graduate from, I never would have guessed, never would have guessed. So, uh, so you know, he, he did this work on, on detecting lies and the universal, uh, uh, the, the uh, universal uh, uh, expression of emotion with, with facial expression. So, um, uh, so I was reading that book and I was encountering a couple of my residents who were lying. And, uh, and I, I, again, I was just kind of centering myself and I noticed that my stomach started feeling expanded and kind of like nervousy, and I noticed that the sides of my mouth kind of wanted to smile, like fear a little bit, um, and uh, that has become my my signature way of telling if someone's lying to me. If I'm in the zone, I can feel it. Um, can I throw a I quick question at you? I want to have a devil's advocate moment. If sure. the down to earth, uh, devil's advocate kind of uh, just imagine a naysayer, uh, doubting Thomas here. Um, for, let's go back to an earlier example, the idea of that Taurus of energy, the idea that you can sense things beyond you that our energy expands beyond our skin. Um, and a person says, oh, that's just a bunch of woo woo. You know, we're, we're talking voodoo here. Come on, come on, get real. How do you answer the ordinary objection? Well, uh, um, the, okay, there are a couple of, of ways that I answer the ordinary objection. The first is the the I guess the honest, which is that I'm only a person and I am uh, I am left with my own limitation. Okay, so uh, so I know that what I experience is idiosyncratic and uh, and I don't even know what to call it. It could be a form of synesthesis. It could have been that by reading Ekman's book, I became unconsciously attuned to micro expressions and that that my body is just kind of giving me that feedback when I'm unconsciously perceiving these micro expressions. You know, so so you know, uh, so I so to be totally honest, I am open to alternate interpretations even of what my experience you know is. Um, it having said that, with some of the naysayers. Uh, like with that example that I talked about before with the mother in the garage and the headache, I would call, by the way, I call those experiences parasomatic, okay, just, just to put a term on them, 
I call them parasomatic because they're, they feel like somatic experiences, but they happen outside of my body. Uh, uh, um, uh, so, um, you know, uh, I don't, with, with that person, I can just say, look, I, I can just tell you that that's what I experienced, you know, uh, uh, take it or leave it, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry that you're going to stay uh, um, locked in those mind forged manacles that you find so comfortable. How about the hard physicist, though? Um, what immediately came to my mind in answer to my own objection was, um, well, you have a thing called a Faraday cage, which it took a really good physicist. Actually, he wasn't a great physicist. He was a great imaginer, Michael Faraday. It took, uh, I think, Planck and a few others to do the equations for what Faraday was talking about. A Faraday cage is essentially if you want to um, build a, a room in which there will be no electromagnetic leakage, there's a formula for doing it. And the reason that's a big deal is because there is fucking nothing in nature that doesn't have a field well, so the idea not, that it has to stop at the right. edge of your body violates right. the most basic laws of physics well of course it of course it does look the reality is this any any wireless transmission okay whether you're talking about your phone that you keep in your pocket whether you're talking about uh uh well not not the television that's wired now but you know, if you're talking about a radio, okay, whatever it is, all of those waves are permeating our bodies. They are all on a physical level moving through space. And they and they are at a bandwidth that they, you know, that that they're at a high enough frequency that they can penetrate through what appears to be solid matter. And of course, there's no such thing as solid matter, really, because there's always more space than uh, uh, than matter. That's the nature of matter. So if you if you look at the basics beyond a Newtonian frame, because what you're really talking about, Dan, is a, a more of a Newtonian physics. You know, I mean, I've, uh, like, the, uh, you know, that most that, people are, don't go beyond Newtonian physics. Not. They just don't not. grasp it. Of, of course not, because because it's what we can observe directly. If I drop this cup, I know my coffee will spill and it'll it'll probably break when it hits the ground. That's the Newtonian level. You know, the quantum level is a level that that uh we can largely um uh intimate into um uh and as far as i'm concerned uh the uh our consciousness is um connected through quantum pathways um the the ionic interactions in our brain i mean the the, the chemical interactions in our brain are ionic okay they you know the, the neurons are fueled by ionic interactions positive and negative charges. That's the easiest, those are the easiest uh, uh, um, uh, particles uh, to be in two places at one time. Those are the easiest uh, 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 units that are amenable to the bizarreness and kind of the uh, Alice in Wonderland quality that quantum physics offers as an alternative view of reality. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I have a lot of uh, responses actually to those who may say, but when it comes down to it, I, I try to choose my battles wisely. <laughs> yep, your battles um, and your competitors. Uh, I um, this is a a bit of a, a jump, but I wanted to uh, go back to uh, spirals for a second um, because, uh, well, so I remember being very. Um, fascinated by the you know fibonacci sequence and like the all that sacred geometry stuff when i first came across it um and uh i 
you know, when, when you mentioned the, the idea of falling down the, the spiral, um, I remembered an, an image that I had um, through, uh, let's, let's say, also intense meditation. <laughs> nothing, nothing illegal for sure. But um, that, that I would see these sort of spiral um, shapes pop in and out. Um, and it was some, it was some, it was this weird thing where like, uh, it, it was different in that I, I didn't feel like I was falling down or like my consciousness was like descending down something. I was just like, I had these, these, um, uh, you know, just, uh, rapid fire thoughts, um, that I felt like would be leading to something. Um, and then of course they wouldn't. And then I would sort of see this little like spiral thing, like, you know, swirl in on itself and then kind of, then kind of vanish. And it was like, that seems like a, a, a metaphor or something, <laughs> something there. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that, uh, so I, I, I saw a lot of uh, affirming nods there. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my, okay. So my thoughts on, the, on that are this, okay. I have, I have done hallucinogens. Uh, they were not legal when I did them, <laughs> but I think the statute of limitations protects me because it's not really my thing. Uh, um, uh, you know, I've, I've done both uh, LSD um, and uh, 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 mushrooms. Um, Kiss your license goodbye, Webb. This is the end. Com com uh, to be totally honest, compar to, compared to what I've experienced in meditation and in a meditation process, those are, it's the, it, that is like parlor trick stuff really? yeah. You know? yeah well i mean look i can understand why psilocybin can be used as a therapeutic uh tool you know i can understand that it can open up consciousness in a way that's actually uh, in somewhat much gentler than the intensive meditation that i was doing at 19 uh uh you know that uh, psilocybin wears off within six hours or so meditation yeah. doesn't you have to reconstitute the self when when you shatter when you shatter yourself meditating you have to you know, kind of literally weave yourself back together instead of just kind of, you know, let, uh, uh, you know, kind of enjoy the tracers and such, you know? Um, so, so uh, um, you know, having said that, uh, within shamanic circles, a lot of times hallucinogens are used as an initiation. Okay, so uh, a lot of times, whether it be peyote, whether it be psilocybin, whether it be, a, you know, one of the frogs uh, from South America, whether it be ayahuasca. And uh, there's another one, John, it's, it's not St. John's wort, but it's like, I, I, I can't remember what it is. It's another, I think it comes from another uh, uh, mushroom, perhaps, uh, in Peru. You know, a lot of times these are used as a way of opening portals or opening doors, okay? Um, and then once the shaman is trained, they don't have any need for the substance anymore because the consciousness is already opened. Yeah, that that's interesting because I I did, um, yeah, they did uh, uh, MDMA a couple of times and then mushrooms a couple of times, and it did it did feel like there was a big ramp up on the first one and then there was, um, you know, maybe on the second or third also, but then there started to be like diminishing returns, um, from it and you know, uh, worse experiences now and that and it, and it was it very much felt like, you know, I thought I was, I was finding something here, but maybe I, you know, didn't have like the, uh, the discipline that, that you're talking about there um, to really like navigate it. 
Well, it depends on what you're trying to integrate. Like, I look, look, I, I, I would, you know, I grew up relatively grandiose. I wanted to be a Buddha. That's not a good thing to want to be. I mean, it, it basically, like, when you try to transcend your ego before your ego is developed, it's not a great thing, you know. Um, and that is exactly what I did, and or that's what I attempted to do. And then I, my, I, my adult identity has been formed in the process of both. Uh, uh, becoming a psychologist, which basically means that you um, uh, put yourself on hold in a lot of ways to the service of others and uh, and trying to develop these different um, uh, spiritual awarenesses. So um, so it, so it's actually was it, it actually has been very complicated and painful at times and perilous at times and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 one of the things that's nice about ritual within shamanic practice is it, it, it creates a field of containment. You know, uh, containment is a beautiful thing. That's one of the things that I've learned that if you, you know, that if you're able to contain awareness within a ritual, then you don't have to worry about it leaking out when you're at the grocery store. And all of a sudden you get hit by knowing some shit about the person next to you that you don't want to know, you know, uh, or whatever it might be. So, or, or, or even feeling the feelings. Okay. So I mentioned that I, I detected, you know, I can, I can feel it when people lie to me, that doesn't happen as much. Okay. What I, what I more typically feel is sadness. And I can say, I can see the sadness, you know, uh, uh, when, when a person is, is, uh, when there's sadness in the room, it, it, it has, it, and believe it or not, this may sound strange. Sadness is a beautiful energy. I see, I see sadness and grief as a gift. Um, uh, because, uh, it's, it's such an honest emotion. It's such an honest emotion and people defend so hard against it. And, uh, and when I'm with someone, um, a lot of times I will either feel or almost see the sadness way above their head. A lot of times, you know, even before they, it seems before they're even aware of it being there. And so, you know, I'll say something like, what's the sadness? And then it's just like, usually it's like the cloud opens and it just comes through. And that energy goes wherever it needs to go. I don't know where it's supposed to go. I don't know where it's supposed to go. I just know it's not supposed to be held up here. Okay. My my most vivid experience with that was about four years ago at a nursing home. And I was talking with a woman. And uh, and again, I felt this, I felt this, this weight starting to descend. And then all of a sudden, and I had never experienced this before exactly. All of a sudden, it was like it was like something from her pushed it away. It was like, you know, I was like, huh. I was like, what's going on? It's like that felt like sadness, but now it's not there. I was like, again, like it feels like there's sadness that you just don't want to acknowledge or something, you know? Yeah, and she, she was like, "How did you know?" She started crying. She had lost her son about a year before. She, you know, uh, she hadn't dealt with it. Um, uh, and so, those are the kinds of experiences that I have had that are confirmatory to that there's something to this kind of perception. I believe that it has to do with perceiving energy, feeling energy. You know, which makes it not supernatural, not parapsychological. It is simply we are bathed in and produce energy and the idea that we have somehow evolved all that but not evolved a natural method for tapping into it and perceiving it and um, refining our perception of it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. We 
ought to. You know, the idea that somehow we have these noses and there are molecules out there, but it would be weird to think we smell it. Mm-hmm. Nobody would question that. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there is energy that goes beyond us and that we are designed, so to speak, to pick it up and and interact with it frightens people. One reason, of course, being, you know, it's, it's definitely an anti-conventional um, religion day today. It's because that is associated with demons, mm-hmm. spirits. We are, uh, you know, in your comment about fundamentalism before, that if we can't allow ourselves to perceive the energy in the room around, you know, from the people around us, um, then how on earth can we develop as individuals? How can we develop our attachments, our capacity to care, to love? Um, and we will be stunted as a result. Yes. Well, right. And 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 growing up in an individualistic culture, it tells us that we are discrete individuals and that we are disconnected and that we are defined on the basis of our external accomplishments and that we're defined on the basis of the external metrics um, displaces the authority of our experience. And it, it gives every incentive not to pay attention to uh, to intuitive senses, let's say. I think that's a very good, um, and yet another perspective on this whole kind of capitalist uh, discourse of, of, you know, what we're talking about now, the kind of evolution that Dan proposes in a way, if I, you know, interpret what you were saying, Dan, the, the kind of refinement process that, that should be more on our radar, given that these are the things we have to work with, they are completely stunted by what we are eating, like fucking binge eating, you know, um, yep. whether it is like consuming shows or clothes or junk food or whatever. So that's a very kind of yeah, important point. And I think I love what you said there about grief and sadness. And I, I, I remember us talking about that. I mean, I have a thing for this. I love it. And I remember me and Dan speaking at some point about, I said something around the, you know, tears, they, they dwell up from the, from the belly and they kind of come out through your nose. Like they go through the whole system. And yes. I've also had this idea of, of like tears as, as kind of windshield wipers in terms yes. of perception and vision, right? Like after you've <laughs> cried, is somehow you get that feeling of, of reconnection to something, yeah. right? Like yes. you said, like it's an honest emotion you have been able to express it and you feel more, or I feel more whole or somehow um, better contained in a way, right? So I have that kind of idea of, of, of crying as, as windshield wipers on the car. You know, you're kind of like adjusting your vision to go out in the world. So yes, I and they've, was, actually, yeah. they've, they've actually found, uh, and I just, again, a few months ago, they actually found that tears contain toxins. Okay, so when we cry, we literally are releasing cleaning ourselves. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you know, uh, and 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 again, you know, these are in, like I'm sure you had your insight before you just found this out. You know, my the, my my attitude toward uh, tears has been the same. You know, but it, but then to find that they're these physical analogs that they're actually toxins that we are 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 uh, alleviating ourselves. We're purging toxins when we. Cry. It's like the animals that lick. You know, like the cat licks itself or something. You know, it's like a self uh yeah cool i had something else i was going to say but I... yeah so the so the tears is toxins that's that's beautiful like cleaning cleaning ourselves somehow um mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's, yeah, it's profound. I, mm. when you were talking about like seeing that sadness energy, you know, hovering and then coming through, um, I thought like, yeah, I've definitely felt something like that before. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one time, definitely on mushrooms, but <laughs> like other times completely sober. Um, whereas, the, yeah, there there is a very much a, a physical release that happens. Um, mm-hmm. And some of those times I have felt like, something's something's act actively leaving me right now i can i can sense that yes uh, so i think that there's there's absolutely something to that well, let's play with that idea that that the grief because this is not a novel idea either i'm thinking of freud and mourning and melancholia and i think it's quite well established in therapeutic theory that you know a, a successful mourning as opposed to getting stuck in in a kind of melancholic state and not being able to process your grief there are two very different kind of situations to be in, you know, in terms of moving on from whatever experience you've had. So if we play with the idea of this kind of grief process as one key kind of figure or, or concept in, in, in some kind of positive trajectory, what would you say, uh, Webb, are kind of a energetic representation of, of grief or like a fractal figure or like, wh- why is it so hard for, for me as well as for many other people to access. I mean, the, the times I am able to access that, I feel so much better and I feel proud of myself somehow. And I feel like this is good. I'm on the journey, what I need to do. But then it can be so difficult, even yes. though I know I carry all this in my body, whatever therapeutic setting, it just doesn't click. You know, I'm not able to get into that mode where I release it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that would be similar for many other people out there, listeners. What What are your takes on that? Like, why is it so difficult to to access that kind of or access, but to process, work through whatever is the best oh, yeah, word? Yeah. Metabolize yeah. or or, yeah. or synthesize or integrate. Release it. Yeah. Yeah. Release. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, I think that sadness and grief is is our is our most vulnerable emotion or related to our most vulnerable emotion. Shame, honestly, shame may be our most vulnerable emotion, you know, and, but I, you know, years ago, I, I, I looked at, you know, there has been work on the relationship between shame and grief as well, that those who are in grieving also tend to have a, a heightened experience of shame. You know, I think that, I think that on the one hand, we naturally, like, okay, so think about it. I, I, I you know, I have a pretty good memory of my childhood, okay? Uh, I can remember, for example, when I was about four being stung by a bee and how much it hurt and how much I yelled and how much, how out of control it felt, okay? Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, I think as a, as a probably as, a, uh, as an individual, you know, we, re- we recognize, well, we're out of control. It feels like we could die from this. So let's tuck it away. That gets into the denial of death. And you know, like what what kind of goes into psychological defenses to begin with? I think the more onerous uh, uh, contributor to the process is uh, social teach social teachings around sadness and grief. Mm. And I and I think that both men and women are told that they shouldn't cry. Both women, men and women are told that they should suck it up. I think men get more of a dose than women when it comes down to it, uh, 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 at least in Western cultures. But um, women are and- considered weak. Right, because exactly. they yeah, right. express and integrate their emotions better. Right, and so and so this this actually gets into even archetypally, we could say that this you know we could we could uh, see that this could be a, a a battle between negative animus and negative anima. 
you know, negative. Now, granted, negative anima is more like sulky, not crying and vulnerable. But but, uh, uh, you know, and negative animus is like a chainsaw interrogation. It's like, you know, <laughs> well, it's like Trump was, you know, like kind of kind of the 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 most full bodied incarnation of negative animus uh, in recent uh, history. So uh, um, so so I think that it's both. I think that that uh, that we try to self-regulate ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that's all about developing psychological defenses. But then uh, we're taught that we're not supposed to feel these ways. I can remember I can remember my grandmother telling me that I shouldn't cry. I can remember my father telling me I shouldn't cry. I can I can remember my mother telling me I shouldn't cry, you know, uh, um, uh, and um, and one of the things that, and oh, th actually, this is something fascinating. I just, and I've been practicing for 28 years, just about two years ago, I had a good reminder of how delicately we should deal with tears. I had a patient who, I, again, I had this experience of the sadness coming and she started to cry. And what did I do? I, I handed her a fucking tissue box, man. What happened? The tears, the tears got tied off. I tried to regulate her. I tried to soothe her instead of just holding her sadness with her. Uh, that's a very good and point. It, and, it, and it circumvented the process. So even something like that uh, can, 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 you know, uh, kind of create a reflexive. That's a very you know, good point. It makes courteous and like, chivalrous. Yeah, come on. That, um, Adam Phillips, I know you like Dan. I read something that he had written, like a quote somewhere that, you know, the psychoanalytic process is like the only place in our current society and culture where people are allowed to be truly unhappy. You know, he's like, this is the most toxic. I mean, his point was that there are no rooms, like there are no, there are no social representations, forums, constellations, where it is, you know, what, what Webb just said, where you are holding space for that kind of natural grief to be released that everybody needs to do at certain points in their lives. So he, he considered psychoanalysis to be a kind of revolutionary force in the very aspect that it allows people to feel what they're feeling you know if you're sad you're sad that's okay it doesn't have to go away it doesn't need to be fixed it doesn't need to be tissued up it needs to be felt right? yes feel it to heal it yeah, yeah exactly yeah, so. and think of how easily martin um even with a, a, a sense and a tone of kindness somebody might say oh don't cry mm. no don't cry Right. We mistake that for kindness. Yes, yes, yes. When we're really saying, among other things, is, oh, please don't. I'm not prepared to empathize with you right now. Well, right. It's like the, it's like a Monty Python skit. I remember, you know, uh, in one of them, he's, he's like, I hate to see a grown man cry. So off with you. <laughs> you know, so, so out of here, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, um, right, right. You know, what, what we think is supportive can actually be undermining to the expression of, of, uh, of, of deeper emotions. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, um, something else I wanted to um, mention about spirals actually. So <laughs> one more time to spirals. Um, I, uh, because this, this, I feel like this keeps coming up for like in in my life now. Um, is uh, I w one of the guys I watch on YouTube recommended this um, uh, graphic novel. I've gotten into comic books lately, which uh, 
I don't know, 32 is a, a little late for it, I guess, but they're, they're great. There's a lot of really good stuff now. Um, but yeah, this is this one called Uzumaki. Um, it's a Japanese one and it's, uh, uh, it's a very weird story. It's, it's uh, sort of horror like and um, a bit of a dark humor in it too. Uh and the whole the story is I'm still in the middle of it, but it's um about this town where um there's spirals start appearing everywhere, like they're in sort of like the um uh in the river. Um there's just all these all these whirlpools forming and stuff. There's like little dust devils and 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 uh little wind you know um uh twist twisting like mini tornado things happening all the time and then like a bunch of the uh adults and like the the kids notice that the this is happening to the adults the adults are becoming like fixated with them so like this one guy's dad will just like see a snail and the shell will just like completely entrance him and they can't get his attention or anything um and that guy gets so um so fixated on this this spiral shape that he uh and again there's this like absurdist element to the story um but he uh orders some kind of like um round like like the bed or like bowl kind of thing that he can get into and like he spirals himself and this kills him because you can't like do that to yourself but he's like fine i mean he's like spiraled it's this weird body horror uh absurdist um moment and then his wife um goes goes crazy and becomes obsessed with getting rid of spirals uh (laughs) the point where she's like like scraping off her her like uh, uh fingerprints and uh like it, you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, just insanity. Um, so that I, I feel like it's probably making a, a commentary on the same, the same thing we were talking about. Uh, I don't really know where it's going yet, but, um, a spirals vortex. Why would it be a good representation of evil and obsession? That's the question that comes to my mind. Right. Uh, yeah. Sorry, do you want to answer that, Jim? Oh, I don't know. I was just. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm. My my association goes back to what I said a little bit before: that duality between wanting to know versus relaxing, right? So if you get so obsessed by something, whether it's fractals or physics or musics or spirals or, you know, uh, what cheeseburgers, whatever it is, right? <laughs> you you completely lose touch with with your real life right so you go mad in some respect Uh, whatever diagnostic term to be used is perhaps not the most important but i that's what i that's what i associate with the story that the guy loses himself because he gets so so the spiral shape there could be like i don't know if it's evil but it's interesting in the sense that it has maybe the scientific potential or this universal shape, right? There there is something real about the spiral. So one would understand that a person could end up there. Um, So that's what I'm thinking. And then the wife, I guess, becomes completely scared of the same thing or, you know, 
I take a, I take a little, a slightly more Hegelian, I guess, interpretation a little bit because we see thesis and antithesis in their reaction, and the Hegelian model is essentially a, 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 a spiral anyway. You know, because because we're going from thesis, let's say, being absorbed by the spiral, yeah. being planted by the spiral. That's thesis. Then we have antithesis which is the wife rejecting the spiral altogether. And so I'm curious about what the synthesis is actually. Where is the child in the story? Yeah. 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 I love it. Yeah. Guys, we're coming down to the end of our um, universe today. Uh, so the bottom of the spiral of the show, perhaps. I'm wondering if anybody has a question or a comment for our guest that can help lead us out yeah exactly um, I, I don't know i well i'd want to say like i i think uh you know even when i was going to leave a few minutes ago like i wanted to say like we should have you back because i do feel like this is sort of unfinished um it'd be great to do uh you know a part two or just another episode I have tons of more material. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to come back. We really, we literally just scratched the surface of different things, both philosophically and experientially. You know, yeah. not only for me, but for for each of you as well. You know, so. Well, maybe next time, Webb, will you tell the story of your staff? Absolutely, yeah. Happy to. Happy to. It's pretty trippy. Nice little synchronicities. So yeah. All right, Martin. Got any yeah, thoughts? No. Not really. I think the Hegelian ladder was a good was a good way, and I think the the kind of for me the the ideas of, of grief and release and symbolizing function and you know finding those middle grounds that's that's always what we end up talking about in one way or another in these shows. I think uh, yeah. of integrating opposites and you know that that kind of stuff. And I think that's the beauty of a spiral, right? That you can go down, but you can also go up. Well, and I just realized right. talking about spirals, this has been in yeah. the background of time. And I, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, a coiled snake. Yeah, but the, yeah the, the snake itself is in a is in a nice little spiral shape as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I would like to thank Webb Garrison, Dr. Webb Garrison, my friend and neighbor here in Huntington, New York, for joining us today. Uh, we're going to have us a part two, so stay tuned. And gentlemen, Joe, Martin, Webb. Uh, Thanks for helping us keep it real and reeling it in. All right, All right. See you again. All right. Take care, Web. Take Bye, care, folks. guys. Bye-bye.